that Digital Society Podcast brings together leading journalists, politicos, and key policy influencers to explore the impact technological change is having in the UK and across the world. And it's hosted by Atos Senior Vice President for Strategy and Communications, Kulver Ranger. Welcome to another edition of the Atos Digital Society Podcast. And my name is Kulver Ranger. I'm Senior Vice President for strategy and communications in the UK and globally for financial services and insurance at Atos. But today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined with with someone who whom I've known for a considerable time and we'll get into that later, but particularly through our uh, well, his political career. And I've, I've watched on with a huge amount of admiration uh, for what he's achieved and what he's been doing ever since that fateful night that you were selected in Folkestone. Um, it is only the one and only Damien Collins. Damien, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Corby. It's good to be with you. And look, a little bit of uh, background on, on your career, because it, especially in politics, you've been, you know, what I would say is a, an amazingly engaged parliamentarian. And, and what I mean by that is uh, your role since you were elected um, especially over the three years when you were chair of the House of Commons Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, took you through so many different areas and challenges. And we know that that committee, that department itself, uh, has, has so much of a landscape to cover. But particularly in terms of areas such as inquiries into doping in sport, disinformation and fake news, football governance, reality TV, homophobia in sport, and the Im- impact of immersive technologies. You know, it, it's a it's a breathless list, but you got under the skin of some of the big topics and challenges that are affecting society in the current day. And, and now um, in your current position where you're the chair of the joint committee for the draft online safety bill, really yeah. integral stuff that from a from a from a perspective of digital is hugely not important just now but probably to, for the future of how we take things forward so if we could just maybe start by looking back how, how have you seen all of those all those really meaty topics emerge and what's been your take on when you when you face this challenge of something like fake news how do you approach it in the first instance to say well how do i as a parliamentarian get around a topic that is probably very much in the in the in the media very much in the minds of the public and which angle do you take to to look at it and say what do we as parliament or you as parliamentarians need to do yeah yeah i mean so i mean i, I was elected, first elected to parliament in 2010 um and i went on the digital uh culture media sports Select committee when i was first elected to parliament and then as you say later became chair of it um the what i mean in in terms of digital policy and tech i mean 11 years is is an eternity you know, um, and things have changed a lot in that period of time. And I think when I first came in, the, the sorts of things we used to talk about the most were things like dealing with piracy, copyright infringement online. You know, there were there were areas of like bad content you know, that were banned because you know producers lot you know were losing revenue because their content was being uh, ripped off and uh, downloaded for free on on pirate sites. And the question questions we always had for the tech companies then were. Can't you do more to stop this happening? You know, the, the, this is you know, piracy is against the law. It's a breach of copyright law. Your platforms are being used to distribute this material. What can you do to make it 
harder to find, you know, or, or even not to link to it at all. And and I think when we started the the fake news inquiry, which was in 2017, um, I think with that time when we started it, what what we thought about really was that fake news was a bit like piracy. It's kind of another form of bad content. You know, it's like, it's like spam. It's kind of you know, it's something it's, you, know, you don't want it want it there. Um, we want the companies to be more responsible about getting rid of it, um, and uh, particularly where it's, it is, you know, causing harm. And, and that was how we, you know, that, so that debate started really as a continuation of some of the challenges that have been thrown at the tech companies all along. And, and of course, it, in, in American law, it gets into sort of, you know, difficult territory straight away because there's there are general protections and liabilities on the tech platforms for doing very much at all about what their users do on their platforms. So they, they, they are not seen as being the publisher. Um, they're not seen as being responsible. Um, but I think what we quickly got into on the disinformation and fake news inquiry was saying actually that the data side of it was, if anything, even more important. It's not just that bad content might be on a, on a, on a platform. It, it only finds an audience because of the, of the systems and processes the company has created to help people find engagement that, that, that content that will engage them, that, that the companies deliver a personalized service. So everyone, everyone sees in their feed is different, um, depending on their own interests. It's personalized around engagement. It assumes that engagement is a positive metric, even though, you know, the engagement can, you know, can be bad, like any form of addiction. You know, people who have addictions engage, you know, engage in things they know are harmful for them, but they are unable to stop doing. And, uh, and you know, the data drives the advertising profiling, and it, it drives the recommendation tools you know, on YouTube, you know, over, over you know, this is, and this is the lower end of, 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 the, of the figures we have on this, you know, over half of what people watch on YouTube, they don't search for, it's played for them, you know, through, uh, through Next Up, features like Next Up. So, so that, that, that is how, how we shifted, starting of seeing there are, there are problems with bad content, and how do you moderate that, to saying, well, actually, there are, there are problems by design, which means, that whilst most people may have a positive experience in using social media, very many people have a very bad experience. Uh, and the systems that have been created in some ways to say, well, if you like this piece of music, you might like that piece of music. You know, in the context, you know, are being used to promote self-harm to teenage girls, are being used to radicalize people, you know, and are being used to spread wild conspiracy theories. And um, what do we do about that? And that, that I think is the, the, the bigger debate we're now, we're now in, which the, the uh, online safety bill is, is there to try and address. And, and and you've been working on this bill for quite some time in terms of from the uh, joint committee perspective. Mm. How have you found, because it has felt that the bill itself has, just as a point when it starts to come to maybe an area of conclusion, there's more that happens in the broader environment that brings an increased focus on what the bill is covering and then maybe the goalposts change. Does that feel that from an external perspective it's felt that way in terms of what the bill is actually trying to deal with now rightly or wrongly seeing the bill as an answer to all of uh social media's ills or all the challenges we have in content with content could be quite a, a challenge for one particular bill do you feel that the bill is still should i say within scope is it is it capable of carrying the scope of what it's trying to achieve so i think I think the bill, and you know, as, as we sort of speak at the moment, so we're on the speaking on the 30th of November, uh, we're in the final stages of preparing our, our report. Um, so some people may hear this podcast after we've reported, in which case they can go and go and look at the report. But I mean, the, the scope of the bill is very is is very clearly focused on 
on harms harms to use harms to users on social media platforms and and through search engines and the responsibilities and liabilities of, of the company of the companies themselves i think what the, what the bill seeks to do is establish a a regulatory framework to address those problems and the framework and whatever ends up being in that within that framework it has certain core principles at its heart that the oversight of the um of the online safety regime will be done by an independent regulator in, this, in, in the UK uh, context that will be Ofcom. Um, they will have powers to gather information from the companies about the way they deliver their services or maybe the, some of the sorts of information that whistleblowers have published in the past, you know, safety reports internally um, to request specific data about, um, about, the, about, about uh, user experience on the platform. Um, and that also there will be code to practice developed which set out guidance for the companies on how they should deal with uh, you know, problems arising with certain sorts of content. Now, some content is is illegal, um, you know, so that, that that's already been very clearly defined, you know, that uh, child sexual exploitation, terror, you know, content that promotes terrorist, terrorist offences, that's always been pretty clearly defined as being illegal. The, the question then for, for the regulator is, how do you bring into scope things like racial abuse, homophobic abuse, you know, things, you know, incitement to commit, you know, a criminal acts, issues that in the past have largely been decided through the courts. But how do you how do you bring those into a regulatory regime where Parliament has already decided we think these things are offences? So what are the trigger points of these offences in the online world? And that's and that's I think that this is what the regulator's job is going to be. Uh, is, and I try to set those standards and say that say two. I think it's trying to say two really important things. One is that when policy decisions are being made by tech companies around what are acceptable levels of harm? You know, um, what, what levels of harm could we intervene and mitigate if we chose to? At the moment, they make those decisions on their own and behind closed doors, with not very much you know, questioning or oversight. So we need to be able to you know, understand their thinking and rationale and to, and to question them and challenge them on that. That's that's a really uh, key key point, I think. Uh, and the second thing is to say, well, who sets the standard? Who sets safety standards in terms of what content should be permissible? And, what, and at the moment, that is largely done by the companies themselves. Uh, and and they and they report back based on transparency reports, which really you know, which out of context don't mean very much. You know, it's hard to know exactly how effective they think that AI really is at dealing at finding illegal content and other other harmful content. So, so the the bill creates a regulator, which creates a framework to deal with these issues. And I think in the future, and I'm sure this will happen. You can add to that. You can you know, there'll be things that we can't at the moment. We don't think are a problem, or we can't envisage that become a problem. And therefore, you've got, so we've got a structure to try and try and deal with that. And at its heart is the idea that um, the regulator holds the companies to account and, and can audit them and investigate them and can ultimately issue big fines against them for, for non-compliance with the code. So, so it sounds like, and I, I know your yeah. committee has been scrutinising the bill and what's being proposed by the government, that you do have confidence in what's being proposed and in the regulator to be able to enforce was required because we all know the challenges that we've seen over recent years with these huge global companies, these huge social media platforms, and the ability for their leadership to be held accountable for what they're doing. So are you confident, Damien? Is that is that what we're hearing that this bill is going to be able to do that? I, I think yeah, I mean I think the um oh, sorry, the regulator will be able the, to yeah, I think I think it, it can work. We can give we can give the regulator the powers that it needs. Um, even with those powers, though, it can still be very challenging. I think the Information Commissioner has, has found this. The Information Commissioner has 
very wide investigatory powers in terms of uh, investigating data offences. But if the companies are not uh, do everything they can to frustrate the process of investigation, it can still be can still be very challenging. Uh, but nevertheless, the processes are there. Big big fines have been levied against tech companies for for their failures. And I think um, I think also part of this process is not only looking to establish rules and then intervening if the companies break those rules or operate below the standards that are required. It also requires quite a lot of transparency from them as well to actually explain what their own terms of service mean. You know, to explain how they Facebook say on their terms of service they don't allow hate speech. Well, there's quite a lot of hate speech on Facebook. So how, do they, how are they defining that at the moment? And when are they prepared to intervene? And so the regulator can also bring a lot of transparency, which will be helpful. And even the ability to get access to internal company research and documents, which, which looks at the issues uh, the company's dealing with today, I think will be very insightful and helpful for policymakers. Part of the problem is we just don't readily have access to that sort of information. So I think the regulator's got the power to really change the nature of this debate and, and change the, you know, the enforcement against harmful content. And then, you know, we're obviously talking about the here and now, but nowadays the conversation is very quickly moving on to the metaverse. Yeah. And how that may play, <coughs> how that may have a need for potential regulation and the regulators yeah. role there. Has that been part of a, an emerging consideration? Have you had discussions around that? Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of, in terms of definitions, the, the metaverse would would very much be within scope of this regulatory regime. It's a, the metaverse is a user-to-user -user service. Um, it, people engage with it in a different way than they do they, they do with uh, with sites like uh, platforms like Facebook and Instagram. And therefore, the nature of the harm that could be caused and the way it manifests itself might be different in the metaverse. But the basic principles that um, that the, the, the the platform has liabilities. And that it's not in a user to user service, the offense is not only what one user does to another, the offense can be the environment that the company has created, which facilitates that, that abusive behavior taking place, or even the role of the company in you know, promoting and directing people towards content that, that can be abusive or cause harm. Um, you know, if you think about um, one, of the, one of the stats that I, I really struck me when I first saw it was uh, a report looking at Facebook's. Uh, work where I think this was based in Germany the report was done in 2016 where they said 64% um, of people that joined groups on Facebook that promoted extremist content did so at the active recommendation of the platform so that there's clear demonstration of their liability in that case so the question then with the metaverse would be how does that how does how would that work in, 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 in the metaverse how would people's experiences be shaped by the platform itself um, in terms of who they interact with and how, and is the nature of that interaction does that um, does that fall within the, the sort of the, the defined areas of harmful activity and content on on the platform? How would you seek to enforce the interactions of two real people within the metaverse? We know how we would do it in the real world, but actually, what, what are the thresholds for making that same intervention in a, in a virtual world? And so, so I think the principles bring all this into scope. What we won't know probably in, until the technology is developed is, you know, probably the guidance that will be issued about how and when these offences have been committed would, would change in, in the nature of that environment. Oh, and, and plenty to consider there, but may, may I just move the conversation slightly maybe back rather than forward yeah. to, to, to maybe your observations of what we've seen obviously through the last oh, 18, now 20 months, if not more, as we've gone through this global COVID pandemic. But the way that technology has played such a significant role 
in enabling people to continue to operate, to continue to live their lives as best as we can, whether there's uh, a digital divide or whether it's the accessibility to services. What's, what's your observation been around, A, how technology has played out through this period, but also the government's approach to digital and the digitalization agenda, because you've been up close and personal with DCS over the, uh, DCMS over the years. Um, how do you see that and, and what's happened over the last 18 months or so and potentially going forward for a government digital strategy? Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I mean, it's you know, interesting to think with the pandemic. If the pandemic had happened um, 20 years ago, the people's experience would have been very different. We wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't have been video conferencing from their, you know, from their, from their homes and be able to work, working remotely or, or remote learning for children would have been, all these things would have been much, much harder. They would have, I'm sure we'd have found a way to do them, but it wouldn't have been as easy as it has been now. So that's, you can see the, the ability of technology to, to really have a positive impact on people's day-to-day lives by giving them tools um, and, and services that, that, that enable them to continue working um, uh, during the pandemic. So I think for, for the government as well, I think the the use of data to, to deliver services, I think there have been accelerations on, on that uh, during the pandemic. Um, you know, I think I was very interested to, to hear about how the government used data to to facilitate the allocation of ventilators to hospitals during the first wave of the pandemic, which is very successful. Um, it, uh, at the start of the pandemic, it, it was just, well, the way it's described to me, it sounded like a sort of like a city trading floor from the 1980s of people on phones sort of screaming at a control center. Um, but instead of having like a data dashboard, which made those allocations um, uh, of, of equipment and, and could anticipate um, spikes in demand. Um, that was, you know, that was, that's quite a big breakthrough. So I think, I think the government certainly sees the, the way to use data more effectively across, across government to improve the delivery of services um, has got a huge potential. I think you've got to take um, the public with you on that journey as well. And, and that means they've got to trust the system. They've got to understand what data is being used for, if their personal data is being used, what consent they give for it. Um, whether is, is, is the use of data based on gra- gathering as much data as you possibly need, or, or you, uh, because you might, it might be useful in some way in the future, or you gather data appropriately as and when you need it, and only as much as you need to complete that transaction. And I think that's why I think countries like Estonia have been successful in that journey. Um, because they've built in that level of transparency for, for citizens, where it's their data being used as well. But government can use its own data more effectively across government. So I think all those things have been very positive. I think when we look about, um, the bell's going to go again in a second, they're going to have to jump off at that point. When we look at um, online safety, though, I think there's been another, I think there's been a step in a different direction, which is that I think people have become more sensitive to, people spend more time online, they've become more sensitive to, I think you know content promoting self harm and abuse and abuse online. Um, they've seen things like you know people vandalizing mobile phone masks because they believe it's spreading coronavirus. You know, inspired to think so by conspiracy theories that exist online. I think people have become much more acute to some of the safety risks that exi- exist there too. And I think if anything, the, the dial has swung in Parliament towards thinking the safety issues are now serious enough that we need to be um, you know we need to put a far greater weight on addressing safety concerns. Uh, then we probably thought we'd need to. But on that point, I'm going to jump off and... I know you need to go. I can hear the bell going. Thank you so much for your time today and more power to you and politicians who are fully engaged in the digital conversation, which over time changes so quickly, but you keep up to speed with it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. To learn more about the podcast or suggest topics or guests for future episodes, 
please contact us at digitalsociety.atos.net or visit the Atos website.